Run It Again is an inside look at the players, the coaches, and the business of sports with former NFL star and broadcaster Ron Pitts. And two minutes later, I was back in the same Oklahoma drill that I got the concussion from. And the mastermind behind the greatest show on turf, Coach Mike Marks. And we want to force him into a vanilla defense and go to work. Run It Again is a hard-hitting, no BS podcast that connects you directly to the source. This is Run It Again. I'm Ron Pitts, and this is the inaugural Run It Again podcast. A simple look at a complex sports world. You're going to hear some things you haven't heard before, and maybe it'll make you think about some things you haven't thought about. At this time, I'd like to bring in a good friend of mine and a great coach, Mike Martz. Hey, Mike. Hey, Ryan. How you doing? Oh, man, I'm hanging in here. This is show number one, and uh, we're making history, I guess, right? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we are. Shoot, this is uh, let's get this ball rolling. I'm kind of excited about this. Yeah, well, okay, so we have so much to talk about, and I, I guess I have to start somewhere. So I'll start with, you know, how did we meet? Well, I think <laughs> I set you up because yeah, I just yeah, love to hear yeah, this. Yeah, that's, story. A, that's, oh, a, that's right. a big softball coming at me. Yeah, no, you know how we met you, Dagon. In 83, we were over there playing UCLA. I was at Arizona State, and we're up by 16 points with five minutes to go. We tell the quarterback, hey, listen, take a bootleg. No matter how open he is, I want you to run the football, you know, and stay in bounds. You know, this is Todd Hans. I say he's going to be wide open because they they got everybody up there, but don't throw the ball. Well, he, he got out there, and he was wide open, and he looked, and he looked, and then this – this guy came out of nowhere and picked it and ran it back for a touchdown. They go for two and get it. Long story short, you know, 16 points in five minutes, and, they, and we come out of there with a tie. But he, he stared at that thing so long, he just couldn't pass it up, and that guy was was you. You hot-footed that thing back into the end zone and got it going for him. So that's how we met. That That's how we met. Okay. I had forgotten, and I just I, I knew you would remember so that that's yeah it was on the left hash and it was a fake power to the right and we hit the tight end coming across and he came down and drilled him let me ask you something Mike do coaches just naturally remember every play that's ever happened in their life like that you know for the most part you know I've been retired I don't remember quite as well but you know you look at so much film and when it happens yeah it's kind of embedded I can actually see the play it's not like I see numbers or anything I can actually see the play you know, it was a kind of a hazy day, you know, in the Rose Bowl, and all was on the left hash. We faked power, and I think it was somewhere around the 27-yard line, but not really quite sure. Um, but you do. Those things flash in my head immediately, and you can just kind of – it's always been that way. I can remember, you know, for years I could remember just about everything. I don't now, but, you know, when you're active yeah. in it, it's, it stays there. Yeah. The only thing I do remember is that game was actually at Arizona State. No, it was in the Rose Bowl. It was in the Rose Bowl, huh? Yep. Okay. All right. We'll see. There you go. Yeah, it was was definitely in the Rose Bowl. Well, I'll take it because I didn't have a whole lot of pick sixes back in college. So (laughs) thank you very much. It was pretty impressive. He did stare it down, though. If he didn't intercept that, I don't know. Oh, that's right. Oh, you had to take some (laughs) shine off me. Like my boys say, why why are you throwing shade, coach? Yeah, right. Don't throw shade on me, man. Anyway, listen, we'll – now we, we fast forward, and I'm doing the broadcast thing, and then we get a chance to work together in the booth. And, but before that, 
we talked when you were at the Rams, not only as a coordinator, but uh, as a head coach. But I remember you used to walk laps around the field before the game. I did, and yeah. and I was I remember one day I was up in the booth and that you know up in that in that your stadium there that was a weird kind of booth it was and I I I can vaguely remember the story Dan Deardorff didn't like the original booth location so you know Dan had a lot of pull there obviously in St Louis area so he said all right move it up here and they put together a kind of a makeshift booth it was terrible up there but anyway so I'm you know a couple hours before the game I'm seeing this guy every time we do a Rams game take a laps. So finally, I said, damn it, I'm going to go down here and talk to this guy. I got to find out who this is. Well, I get down there and I find out it's Mike Martz, the offensive coordinator. And I think I, I probably bugged the hell out of you one time and said, hey, coach, how you doing? I'm covering your game. Like, like you wanted to hear any of that crap. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you were cordial. And then we did you know, have a friendship from then on. Yeah, you know, I, I did that before every game my whole career. What I would do, Ron, is... I'd like to get out there before actually the players would get out there and, and walk around the field. And yeah. I had to play, you know, the the whole plan in my head, basically. And I wanted to call the game without having to look at the card and, you know, the game plan, et cetera. So I'd walk around there and I'd usually had some music in my head and, you know, the headset on and I'd walk around and I'd, you know, look at places in the field and just imagine calls and situations and kind of play the game in my head before it was played. Well, you played it very well and, Obviously, then the next step was head coach, and we had many production meetings after that. And I remember one time we did, you, were, yeah. you were nice enough to give me your, your play sheet, which I, I, uh, I did put on air. I, I, I covered it up so, as to, so no one could see you know, what you were trying to do, but I, that was huge. That, I thought that was big. Well, you know, those play sheets now in the electronic age and with the computers and all that stuff, and they just they put that into – <clears throat> the the system and it's been online now for quite some time. It's the whole playbook. So, you know, I, I had a, I did a, uh, um, you know, we had a, uh, a big deal for all the high school coaches there, a big clinic, yeah, a, a free clinic at the Rams. And after I said my opening remarks, there's about 800 coaches there, and a young man comes up and says, "Hey, coach, uh, could you help me?" I said, "Sure. What can I do for you?" He shows me this page, and that's a page out of our playbook with a pass play all drawn up on it. And all wow. the things, all the particulars on it. And yeah. I, he said, now, how do you read this? I said, I beg your pardon. He said, I, I said, where'd you get that? He said, well, you can buy these online for five cents a pop. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, no secrets anymore. That's no, sure. no secrets, no. Yeah. And I, I remember that you, you said, okay, I need it back like next week. And yeah, 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 coach, no problem. No problem. I'll get it back to you. I think I got it back to you about three weeks later. I got a call from, and I can't remember who was doing the, uh, like the, the, the PR for you guys. Uh, but anyway, he, he called me up one day. He said, Hey Ron, um, coach wants that, that play sheet. I said, Oh, no problem. Well, I, we're going to do you guys this week. And when I come back in town on Thursday, you know, we meet with the coach on Friday and I'll give it to you then. He said, uh, no, you don't understand. He wants that play sheet. Now I had to FedEx <laughs> that damn play sheet back to St. <laughs> I'm not sure why I'd want it. Once it's done, it's done. We moved on to something else. I was probably just afraid of, you know, of it getting out there. And yeah. not like yeah, the coaches are so paranoid now. I mean, and for good reason, though, let's be honest. You know? so, but so much of that stuff, it was so guarded. And now nothing's a secret. You know, like Bill Belichick, for instance, uh, as most coaches do, they hire all these young kids to pour over all these game tapes and pull out all these ideas and put together for them to look at, which is – 
Good. So if you have something that you think is yeah. kind of new and unique and you run it that Sunday, if it's a good play, 31 other teams are going to have it. And they'll, if they like it, they'll be practicing it that, that week, which didn't happen 20 years ago, you know? Yeah, that, that's right. That's right. Well, let me transition here away from a game into obviously a very serious subject. I guess you call it a month, a month and a half uh, that we're in uh, pandemia, COVID-19 as it's formally called. And Mike, it's funny because I, I keep thinking about one particular event that we both went through. You went through it as a head coach. I went through it as a broadcaster, and that was the 9-11 Super Bowl. Right. You guys you played that? the Patriots, and uh, it was just, remember how weird that was from a security standpoint, just that part of it? Yeah, it was real weird. Our hotel room, Julie and I, can, we were right on the river there in the hotel we were staying, and I just remember, you know. Down in New Orleans, time, right? Yeah, yeah. yes, yeah. in New Orleans, I'm sorry, yes, in New Orleans. And I just remember looking out the window and seeing these uh, gunboats with machine guns going up and down the river, <laughs> you know. Julie didn't get in the game. She missed the whole first quarter. Really? You know, she, she wasn't able to get into the game, no. So um, there, the security was very, very tight. It was such an odd feeling. And then, of course, that we introduced the team, but it seemed like we were on the sideline for 35 minutes. In fact, I know we were out there for 30 minutes before the ball was even kicked off. So it was yeah, it was really, yeah. really different. It was odd. And it kept waiting for this thing to, to get going. Then I felt a tap on my shoulder. I looked around. It was President Bush. You know, <laughs> so – that that kind of got your attention too. Of course, he went to the other sideline right away, but that's a whole other deal. <laughs> he he well, saw the red, white, and blue. Couldn't help himself. You know, he had to get over there. So and he jumped to the other sideline. Yeah, nothing yeah. like uh, yeah. ten minutes before kicking. Oh, hi, George. Yeah, all right. Presence on the other side. You you don't have a chance. You know, uh, the security was insane, and I just remember layers upon layers upon layers. But more importantly, and the reason I bring this up, it, the mindset. Going into that was – it was um, – part of it was depressing, obviously, because of what had happened. And the other part of it uh, was extremely emotional. It was a very emotional weekend, you know, obviously for a lot of Americans, but for us. And this – what we're going through right now, COVID-19, Mike, it, it just gives me the same kind of feeling – in, in some regard, even though it's completely different, but nonetheless, the same emotions are there for me. Well, there is. And I think it, what draws both from both of those situations is you want to feel safe. You know, you want to feel safe in that 9-11 situation. You want your family to be safe. You want this country to be safe. And then here in COVID-19, too, you want to be safe. You know, you want your family safe. And you do whatever you can to protect that. And not take those kinds of risks that would expose anybody to any danger. So uh, there are some correlations to it. There's no question about it, but um, it's frightening, you know, and uh, we'll get through this, you know, as, you know, they're do the right thing and, and, you know, they'll eventually get this thing corralled and, but we've got to be patient about it. Well, we're all safe up here. I hope uh, you and yours are safe and everyone listening safe as well. Now, we talk about COVID-19, so now let's transition over into the business of sports. Now, we've seen what regular 9 to 5, Monday through Friday business has had to go through and the shutdowns and how that's affected people. But now, how does this trickle over into the business of sport? And we just had the NFL draft this past weekend, and they did something that I didn't think would ever happen 
in the NFL, and I didn't think it was even possible to do it. And yeah, there were glitches, but they had a virtual draft. They pulled it off. They did. And they did a good job with it. Um, I, I just think that uh, in terms of getting prepared for that draft, I don't know that that there was uh, an issue for anybody. You know, they get everything done uh, by January with all their scouts, and then they add the coaches' information to it. and they. But all that stuff that you can do meeting-wise, uh, you can do – you know, electronically, as we all know, through those meetings and all those, yeah, you know, apps that you use and whichever one that you're using doesn't make much difference. But, you know, all that can that information gets disseminated and it comes right down to one or two guys making the decision anyway. So it's not like you need everybody there, but it was I thought they did a good job. with it. it was a very, very strong draft. It's probably as talented a draft as I can ever remember, to be honest with you. Yeah. Well, so. Let's talk about the other sports. Now, you've got the NBA. Originally, they said May 1st they would start practicing, but then they amended that and now pushed that back to May 8th, just one week. Uh, NHL, soccer, still no word as to what they are planning to do going forward. The big question, and this hits home for me because I've got two college football players. Oh, I should say, excuse me, I should say student athletes. Uh, what are they going to do and when is that season going to start and is it going to start? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I, you know, pro sports, you can kind of sequester everybody and kind of keep everybody confined and control the environment. And, you know, in college, you can't, you know, you got kids on campus coming from everywhere in the country and the world and they get exposed to all kinds of different people. And, and uh, then when they travel each college is going to have different ability in terms of where you put them up and how you travel. And uh, it's, it's kind of a, it's a catch 22. How do you do this? You know, like I said, in college, there's so many variables that you can't control. And is it worth the risk? You know, you have to ask yourself that, but you know, sports is, has so much to do with the morale of this country. You know, Americans love sports. They love basketball, baseball, football, tennis, whatever it is. And you like to see that, you know, continue if it can somehow so you know is at what point is a risk uh, make it not worthwhile well anthony fossey from the cdc came out a couple weeks ago before the draft and said oh no the draft and the nfl and sports in this country can resume if it's done the right way uh mlb i left mlb out they've talked about launching in the city of phoenix and basically using the, the multiple uh, baseball parks and facilities that they have there anyway for spring training. Uh, but now that brings up another question, and, and it's a legit question. What about the safety of other players? Uh, and then what about the safety of people already in the area? Uh, let's say a, a player comes in and he's positive, but the league doesn't know it until he gets there. Now he possibly infect several other players and now the players uh, spread it and and if family members are involved that's another issue Uh, it just seems like still a good idea but a lot of moving parts to it well there is and and like you said the testing part of it is critical they'll all have to be tested every week and I think all the professional sports will have to deal with this uh, in terms of the public uh, and how they feel about it because there's so many people out there that need to get tested they can't that's not available to them right. and yet you've got these highly paid athletes that are getting tested every week you know and taken care of so to speak so 
you know, the, all the, I, I think all the leagues are going to have to deal with that perception, you know, of the spoiled, you know, pro athlete gets whatever he needs to get yeah. and all that sort of thing. But yeah. how important is that to this country that we play? And I think it is very important, you know, and I, I just yeah. think people want it. And I think it's one of those things you deal with, but that being able to control the environment and then test and trace, I think is critical as, as you know, it's been talked about at length, uh, you know, on TV. So the testing part of it, I think the leagues are all prepared to do that once a week. And like you said, once somebody does test positive, then you have to trace back and find out and then retest those people. And and when you test, you're just not testing the players. You're testing everybody from the groundskeeper and the managers and, you know, office, everybody that's involved. So you've got to keep them in a fishbowl and not let them with their families. You know, they'll have to be sequestered somehow away from their families more than likely. Yeah. Yeah. And then that brings up another question of inoculation or, or medicine, treatment medicine. And this is kind of a historic issue for the NFL and other professional sports in situations like these. How do they not look insensitive when they're going to take their group of guys and protect them? They're going to get the best of the best of everything from the nutrition aspect of it to the medicine aspect of it and, and, and so on, the testing aspect of it. But how do you not look insensitive if the rest of the public doesn't get that exact same thing? I mean, they, they counted, what, over 15,000 deaths and perhaps more in New York City just because of this virus? Yeah, you know, the but all athletes, professional athletes, as you know, you were one. And your experience is when, when you had something wrong with you, you got – it was done immediately. And yeah. you got the best care by the best doctor uh, wherever that team was, right? So – that exists before Corona, you know, I mean, that, that right. was already well, in right. place, but yeah. now you've got people, but nobody suffered because of that. That's right. You know, the trade out here is, are they getting this at the expense of somebody? That's what I'd be concerned about. That's exactly right. Yeah. You know, right. if it isn't, then it's just part of being a professional, you know, athlete. It's just what happens, you know, you're yeah. just going to have to deal with it, but to take away from somebody and then give to, you know, that's just not right. So they'll have to deal with the perception of that and, you know, it'll be hard for them, but it's, I think it's worthwhile. I, you know, the testing will be more available as the weeks go on, I'm sure. And the ability to trace this, and that's the only way to get through it, I think. Yeah. And the league announced today, you know, they've got different contingency plans uh, moving forward for the season. Now, depending on what happens, because part of the country believes there's a second round, a second wave of the virus coming through, and that could be later on in the year. Once we, and assuming we safely get past this one, but the league has talked about moving the Super Bowl to February 28th, and it's scheduled right now for February 7th in Tampa, and perhaps, which makes sense in some regards, and I know you're going to have a lot to say with this from a player's uh, health and safety standpoint, uh, getting rid of the bye weeks. That that is an option there, along with cutting two weeks in between the conference championship games and the Super Bowl, and maybe even canceling the Pro Bowl, which is, to me, a, a, a bad deal anyway. And it's been a bad deal for a long time. Right, right. Well, I think um, in order to have the season, you're going to have to, you're just going to have to deal with some of that. And you're just going to have to accept it, just like the Super Bowl that you were talking about that we had with New England. Now, that was supposed to be a two-week deal, but because of 9-11, that's right. You know, they backed That's off right. that week and we lost that other week of preparation. So we had just one week to get ready for the Super Bowl. You just deal with it. That's the cost of doing business basically in, in this time with, with these, 
you know, with these things going on. So with the COVID, but I think probably the biggest issue is when will it start? Is it safe to start, you know, and how it's going to start and have that all lined up and ready to go. I'm sure they're working like crazy on it now. And I would imagine they're talking about a season without anybody in the stands, I would think anyway. Well, yeah, that's that's one of the uh, the deals I think that that Fosse laid out. It, the only way this can possibly work, assuming everything else that's set forth works to the T, there will be very little fans in the stands, if none at all, in in certain venues. And so I think that's that's something that everyone's talked about. Mike, can you actually have a productive off season from a virtual standpoint? No. I don't think so. I, I think Sean Payton did the right thing and just told those guys, hey, here's a workout, go do it, see you at camp, you know. Uh, I don't know how that would possibly work. I, it's just a control thing, Ron, to be honest with you. Co- coaches want to be under, uh, in control of everything, make sure their guys are – they're like kids. You know, they treat them like kids sometimes and make sure yeah. they don't – you know, they don't trust that they're going to do the right thing and they want to see them and evaluate and this, that, and the other thing. Well, it's not going to work. You know, here's your workout. You know, we've got cut-ups for you to look at and emulate these drills and get out there and trust that you're going to do it. It's your career. At some point, you got to trust them. And yeah, I think I think what would be interesting, though, for the commissioner to consider would be to bring in all these draft picks and first- and second-year players, allow them to come in perhaps a week to 10 days earlier and do some, you know, skill work without pads on, trying to get them – in line with what what's going to happen for them, like the transition, help them through the transition so they don't they don't hit the ground when the vets do, and they're trying to figure things out. It gives them a better chance, and you know, making the team number one, number two of, of making the transition. I, I would hope that they would do that. You know, Ron, when you were playing, they did that. Do you remember they did? Uh, you know, they did that. They would bring the uh, you know so the quarterbacks that wanted to come back, but they'd bring rookies and first year players in for about a oh, week. Oh yeah, yeah. Once July. Fourth ended your your summer was done, yeah. and you had to check in early. And you know they, we'd bring in what uh, rookies uh, at, at that time they used the term skill position, but that was running backs, receivers, and quarterbacks. Right, yeah. they do some seven on seven stuff, and yep. but anybody who didn't have a, a two accrued seasons or something like that, yeah, you, know, you could have been in the league and been on practice squad or bounced around, not made it, and didn't have an accrued season, still be available. Yeah. Or if you were a, a signee if you're new to the club you know from a, you know trade or whatever that is so i yeah. think it's important i think it would help them without the off season to buffer a week or so where they can come in and be in the classroom and do some field work i think it would only help them and then when the vets come in you know you get going yeah i can't imagine what it would be like to do what my sons are doing like i said they're both playing college football right now and and not only do they have their online classes i mean they're blowing zoom up but they're also having their meetings. And I think the meeting time is taking over the classroom time. But everything is done online. I don't, I don't know how effective. And clearly, it's not the same thing. We get that. But it's just a way to keep in contact, I guess. Keep, right? in con- keep them engaged in the sport. You know, keep their attention on it, which is real important. Um, you know, the interesting question from there, Ron, would be this. If this is effective to some extent, how much of this, once we're through the virus, will will sports keep? In other words, yeah. how much of this now can be done online like that where they don't have to be there? You know, what will be the carryover in all facets of business, for instance? You know, talking to some people out there, Ron, they said, you know, that 
know, they're on Zoom and they're doing this and they, they're figuring that there's some of the stuff that they do in the office they don't need to do. They can do from home. So, yeah, to, to me, yeah. don't you think uh, that's got a chance of affecting everything? Well, no. Well, my wife, you know, she, she's an agent and she takes that hour and a half drive, if you can believe that, into work every single day each way because that's called L.A. traffic. And I, I just was telling her the other day, I said, you know, it's interesting. You, you have now freed up about three hours of work time because you're not in the car. And yeah, you can roll calls and she takes her calls and does all that, but it's not the same as when right. she's in the office. And like you said, I think some of these, these businesses are going to figure out that, hmm, I can send uh, half the workforce home and let them work remotely and everyone else or the people I really need, I can keep them in the building and uh, I can still make money or, or even more money than I made before. Well, how about colleges? How much of that general education, you know, when you have that biology class with a, 150 yeah. or 200 people in that big auditorium, you know, or whatever, how, how many of those classes could really be just taught online? And, and I think yeah. they are right now and anyway right. before this happened. But, you know, can you put the first two years of a, a young uh, person's education online completely and then get into a major, then go on site? And how much yeah. would that save? cost and you know all that yeah there, oh, it'll yeah. be interesting because when we're through this it, it's going to impact our lives at every level i'm sure yeah well they're already trying to say that about the draft now i i had i had my issues with some parts of the draft i i still and, and a lot of people have hit me up and, and emailed me and texted me wanting to know why after every player was drafted in the first round there was a, a horrific story, a personal story in the form of a bio about that player. It, it seemed like it was either one of two things. It was either the father had just died or the mother and father had died. And after a while, people said they got tired of it because they've gone through so much of this. Like I said, with 15,000 plus deaths in the state of New York, New York City. And they want to get away from that kind of mindset right now. They just want a breather, I, I guess. And, and I understand you, you're, you're going to put up what's true. I get that. But that just felt like they were on the, the negative side too much with that. A lot of heartache in, in those productions. I kind of agree with you there with some of that. Some of it was good. I thought there were a couple of stories there that were interesting right. and, yeah. and heartfelt. But yeah. Um, they're tugging on your heartstring a lot. I could see that. I agree. The, the only yeah. problem I had with the draft, and it's just old old guy, I guess, is I've never felt comfortable going into somebody's living room. <laughs> you know, it's somebody I don't know and just watching them. You know, I just I just felt awkward. That just felt are, awkward. To are me. You but I guess me people you, really liked it. You know, I don't I don't know. I I didn't feel comfortable with so, watching somebody in their living room. You know, and I don't know. It just didn't just didn't set well with me somehow. But that's just me. So what are you saying, Mike? You weren't comfortable watching Mike Vrabel's son, you know, go to the bathroom and not shut the door <laughs> in the middle of the first round? I miss that. <laughs> anyway. no, it was, I was happy for him. It was great. But anytime you go into somebody's living room that you don't know, it's always a little, Yeah, you know, I felt uneasy a little bit. But, it, you know, everybody yeah. it seemed to enjoy it. And I, I think the reviews from it were really strong. But. I was just a little uncomfortable. I would have rather see them show more of the young man playing, you know, and some of the background, listen to that, and some of the guys talking about him than going into the living room, I guess. But maybe it made the NFL look more human. 
in a weird kind of way. The one, and I can't remember the player, but the girlfriend is laying on the player's lap. This is after it's been announced, and she's snuggled up nice and tight, and it was really a beautiful scene. But then the mom comes over, and she just starts pulling on her and tugging on her. And finally, <laughs> she just like tossed her. She's like, get up. Uh, well, <laughs> I don't yeah. know. I don't know what was going on and what that was about. But that, that I'm sure there's a big story there somewhere. Yeah, I just, uh, that whole thing, uh, <laughs> like I said, it, it, and it's, it's not, I mean, I, I'm sure everybody out there enjoyed that part of it. I yeah. didn't. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You feel a little uncomfortable, but the, the yeah. part that was uncomfortable was at the very end. The commissioner got a little tired, didn't he? He was, oh, uh, yeah, he was they, like he, like he was waiting for Santa Claus. He never came, you know. He <laughs> he, was, he had his feet up. He's back there. His, his eyes were half crossed. You know, he got looked like he got a little tired, didn't it? <laughs> waiting for Santa Claus, but yeah. you ate you ate the other cookie. You drank right. half the milk, and then no Santa milk Claus. And cookies, uh, yeah, no Santa Claus. He looked a little dejected. He looked tired for sure. Yeah. Well, I knew he was in trouble when he he sat out. Once he, he took a knee, once he took the knee, that was it. Yeah, when he went from the shirt and sweater to a t-shirt and jeans and took a knee, you knew the draft was yeah. nearing an end. You know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I I've I've met Roger a couple of times, obviously, and I know you have many a times. I, you know, he he's a, a nice guy to talk to one on one. Great guy to talk to one on one. You know, he knows all the bro hugs, so that that's another big kudos for him. But I, I think they made him a uh, an announcer, not a commissioner, and that was different for him. And it, I think at the end of the day, not you know, not that he doesn't speak in front of a lot of people and, and all that, he does that. But he realized this is a lot different when you're up here for three rounds instead of one round. Yeah, yeah. He, you know, I just think that you know he read a lot from the prompter, et cetera, and I I understand yeah. all that. Just like Rogers, kind of fun to talk to. He's a very intelligent guy. Yeah, he can well. Imagine and know, so being kind of fun just to see him have a discourse here without having to read it. But that's, you know, that's who he is. I mean, that's he's a lawyer. I mean, that's the league, and you know, it's it was done well. They did everything uh, to do what they did was a, a big chore. It was a, you know, yeah. they took a big bite out of that. Now that was that was hard for them to do, and they pulled it off. Well, now who who's fooling who, Mikey? You, you've been in this business a long time. And I've been in this business a long time as well. The NFL, at the end of the day, is about making that dollar. And I, we understand the sensitivity of COVID-19, but I didn't think there was any way that they were going to not have that draft, just like I don't think there's any way that they're not going to have this season. Well, I agree with you. I, I mean, it's obviously it's big business, but you know, when you look at the league itself – and the amount of money and the ripple effect, you know, whether it's Vegas and the betting lines to uh, mm-hmm. fantasy football and, you know, all the people that, you know, f- uh, from television to the actual game, the people are at the stadiums, the concessions, how many lives professional football affects financially, you know, dollars and cents wise. It's it's yeah. huge. There's anything like it in the country. Yeah, especially so, the betting lines. Uh, well, yeah, yeah but exactly. Yeah. So, this year, too. Yeah. But who's kid new? I mean, that's that's it's a business, but it's also the game I love, you know, and I know yep. you love it, the game, too. So it has such an effect on the morale and the well-being of people. You know, anytime a team is in the playoffs, that city just – you, you've been in those towns when it's happening. You, you've been around right. that where it's just – it's electric. It's different. And people look forward to that diversion in their life, you know. And 
I think it's it, it, we can't never lose sight of how important those types of things, whether it's the NBA, baseball, tennis, uh, whatever it is. I don't care what the sport is. People need or like that diversion and escape and attachment to their team or, or whatever. So I think it's good if we can get this done, the league can pull it off, uh, and I think they can, but there's got a lot of planning to go. The biggest issue for me is, you know, these these players – if they're going to be sequestered or if they're going to be with their families because are their families sequestered, you know, those kinds of things. So in professional sports, you can contain yeah. it. Like I said, yeah. college, like you said, Ron, I, I don't know how they're going to deal with that. And, and we talk about the NFL money. The college money, Mike, is, is just as lucrative and just as expansive. And I saw an article the other day about the SEC and what the SEC means in terms of money not only to their conference, but to the entire NCAA. It's staggering. Well, the football playoffs, you know, look at the, the amount of money involved there. And then j- just think of basketball and, the you know, the final going down to the final four and, you know, the national champions for both. Uh, yeah. The purse there for both those is just gigantic. And that's, you know, obviously TV revenue. So, you know, it's, it's lost money. Yeah, yeah. Well, the takeaways, let's go back to this draft when we'll wrap this up here. The takeaways from the draft, and I, I've never been a big, uh, they come out with that article every uh, Monday saying the winners and losers. The winners and losers. Who, who I want to know who the guys claiming the winners and losers are that didn't spend the last three months studying every player in the NCAA. Yeah, you know, it's a, that's such a hard thing to pick up and read the next day as a coach because, you know, generally speaking, you get the guys that you want. You know, there's you're not going to draft somebody that you didn't fall in love with someplace on that board, you know, in, ter- yeah. in terms of their value and their needs. So uh, I think what people do is they overanalyze everything. You know, of course, they, they get paid to do that too. So, yeah. you know, they put uh, value on here's their needs. They didn't meet their needs like they should have. Well, that's how you see their needs. You know, they may not see the needs like that. So yeah. I think that uh, you have to be careful. A time will tell on that. You know, there'll be a fourth or fifth round or even a seventh round. Or who knows? There might be a six-round quarterback out there that becomes a Hall of Famer, you know. So yeah. who knows? And five years from now, we'll have a much better idea. Now, certainly um, some of these, you know, the draft was really strong in the first and second round, I thought. The stronger as I've ever seen it. I think there'll be a lot of players make immediate impact, and I think that'll be fun to see. How do you know if a quarterback is the quarterback? Boy, that's an interesting question. It takes a lot of time to answer that. You, you'll know there's, first of all, uh, to me, this guy, and this is what Ernie Zampezi told me three things in evaluating a quarterback. Accuracy is num- number one. You know, uh, intelligence in other words, when he said intelligence, it's not how smart he is as much as the ability to retain information and then take something, see it, and react to it quickly without having to think about it. And then toughness, you know, being on the field, physically tough, and then the, the emotional toughness, which comes down to leadership. And to me, the, the biggest thing about it, that guy better be the best leader on your football team standing on the sideline next to you, you know. And, you know, you get all these talented guys and they never – materialize completely well there's somewhere in there there's a disconnect whether they're they just can't read and react as quickly as you like them to or they just don't have that competitive they're not as competitive as you thought they were but if you don't have one of those three if you're not strong in all three categories you'll be a hit or miss guy 
You got to be strong in, in, in all three of them, meaning you yes. got to be a an A type guy in all of those, right? Well, yeah, and the accuracy thing is first and foremost because if you can't throw, like Ernie used to always say, Michael, if he can't throw it from A to B, he's not accurate, you know. And he always felt like you can't, you know, that's something a God gave you, obviously. And um, you know that was always what he was looked at first and foremost. And then he would, you know, he looked at all the other things, but. I think, you know, all these clubs, Ronnie, you know this, you, you know, they'll have 50 things to evaluate on a quarterback and most of us just fluff, but yeah, you know, there's so much money involved now, so much attention, you know, that there's got to be gimmicks or a reason why or analysis of and stats and numbers on everything. And you know, when it comes right down to it, you know, is he, is he accurate? You know, and is he a smart enough guy? Does he have that, that quick twitch mentally? Is he a tough guy? You know, and that's it. Oh boy! That, now that last one you just mentioned—that's the one that I think they forget about a lot. That toughness. Well, they, it, they do, and and I think that we're talking about being able to take a beating uh, in the media, and you know, just the emotional beating, and be resilient yeah. and come back. And yeah. you know, those the quarterbacks that I really enjoyed working with the most were those guys that have been kicked around, and and then they decided that they, they were just not going to be denied. You know, and. You know, the Kurt Warner, the you know yeah. Trent Green and Mark Bulger, John Kitna. Those are the kinds of guys that, that I like being around because they are so motivated. And Ron, you know, good quarterbacks come in all shapes and sizes. You know, you have Drew Brees yeah. to the six foot six guys, and you know, they're just all speeds and all arm strengths. And, you know, this guy doesn't have a strong enough arm. Oh, no, wait, wait a minute now. <laughs> you know, if he gets the ball out anticipates the throw and he's accurate it's plenty strong you know so yeah unless he you know he can't throw it over 30 yards but you know that's it's an oversimplification i know but those three things are are in granite in terms of identifying a good quarterback who surprised you the most when you when you went to look at him maybe you didn't think he was going to be worth much or maybe you thought he was going to be much better Sean Hill. Yeah, I had him at uh, San Francisco. Yeah, and Sean, you know, Mike Nolan, when I went there, he said, you know, Mike, he's going to not look good in practice, but he's going to play. He's going to play really good. And, you know, we, we had a little quarterback uh, controversy there to some extent. Sean ended up, before I got there, finishing the season out as the starter. And Yeah. But anyway, we got going the season, and, and we had to make a change here. We weren't doing very well. We went with Sean, and Sean did not practice well now. You know, he, he just missed easy throws, and it was very frustrating for me because I, as a coach, I'd never experienced that. You know, yeah. if you practice well, you play well. That's the way I was grounded in my Is that okay, though? Is that okay if a guy, because I think Jake DeLome had a little of that in him. He never looked good in practice. Guys don't look good in practice. They, they blow this, blow that. Can they really turn it on in the game? Well, Sean Hill did. <laughs> <laughs> he did. He's the only player I've ever been around like that. And, and players warmed up to him because of that. And um, I just think that during the week, Kurt on Wednesdays, he'd take the game plan. He'd go out there and you look at him practice. You think, oh, man, you guys are not going to do well this week. You know, and then Thursday, he looks pretty good. Friday, he looked amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just kind of how it went. But um, it, there's a psyche there for your team, too. And that quarterback's practicing good during the week. You know, there's a confidence that builds in that group, too. Yeah, yeah. Now, this kid, Joe Burrow, okay, uh, I don't know how much film you've had a chance to look at on him. What are your early takeaways on him? 
Well, I really like Joe. I think he's probably as good as a number of them come out in the last few years. I think Joe, his anticipation, uh, what he sees, just remember we're talking about those three things, uh, the the smarts, intelligence, that's yeah. what he has. That, that football acumen, he can see it and react to it immediately. And not just react to it, but make good decisions. He makes all the throws. He really throws a good ball. He's, he can make throws off balance. He's good under pressure. In other words, he's got guys he can make the difficult throw and get hit and stand in there and do that. Uh, tall guy, he's athletic enough. He, and he's that guy, you know, a year ago, and he, he was kind of a guy, and all of a sudden he came out of nowhere and had this great year. So yeah. that goes back to that toughness too. He's he's rode this thing out in his career, and, you know, he's determined to get it done. I, there's not anything about him that I don't like. I, and I think what they did with him football-wise – was further along the curve than most teams in college, just more geared towards the NFL. So his transition, I think, will be relatively easy. Not that being said, he's at Cincinnati, so you know I'm not sure what their roster is and how they can help him. But you know, just ask Troy Aikman. You know, that first year on a team that's not very good is not a lot yeah. of fun. Yeah, we we played against them on that first year. They they were not the Cowboys that went on to we win three Super Bowls. I'll tell you no. that. Uh, that was that was very different. I was talking to John Kitna uh, one day. This was a production meeting up in Detroit when you were there. And <laughs> he, I said, so what does Mike bring that, that you really like? He said, well, first of all, I got a guy that will finally take his foot off the brake. And he was <laughs> referencing other coaches. And next he said, you know, I got to push the ball at the field. I can't be scared. And I've never had a coach talk to me about not playing scared. And I don't think people think of quarterbacks as being like that. but I, I think you wanted your quarterbacks to not play scared. Ron, all quarterbacks, especially if it's a, if it's a defensive head coach, all quarterbacks are told you know, from a very young age what not to do. Don't throw it here. Don't throw interceptions. Don't, 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 don't. So what happens, you get all these guys that are cautious and they play cautious and they won't mm -hmm. turn it loose. And, you know, you've got – I'd rather have that guy that feels that he can make any throw anytime, anywhere, and he can do it. You know, you can back him off, but you can't create it. You know, it's hard to create that. So yeah. John had been beat up so bad about making yeah. – not making mistakes, right? So yeah. I, I, his first play, I can tell you what it was. It was 428. We're on the right hash. He threw a dig. And I, I look out there and I see this dig. It's coming open. And all of a sudden the ball gets checked down to the back. Like he came back to the home. I said, what are you doing? <laughs> and he said, well, I completed. I said, you, well, I had some words for him. I, I can't repeat, but yeah. I said, no, 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 that's not what we do. So I called the same play. I said, I don't care what, what you see. I want you to throw it to that guy on the dig. He said, well, the linebacker. I said, what are you looking at the linebacker for? Yeah. You know, just yeah, get your eyes in the hole. There's a hole. Feel the linebacker. We stop looking at all these defenders. You know, throw it. Get your eyes where you want to throw it in the hole and get it out there. So he came back. He nailed it. And he kind of looked at me. And well, our relationship changed from that point on. Then he really trusts what you're trying to ask him to do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, like you, you say, guys have been taught for so long, don't turn the ball over. But you right, didn't want exactly. to give up great plays and. And that's your Ernie Zampezi and Sid Gilman background. You weren't going to give up vertical passing plays and, and, and big plays for the sake of completion percentage. Just about everything in our playbook, when he comes back there, if he's got a shot down the field, we want him to take it. Yeah. You know, and yeah. he can analyze that. And, they can, you know, a good decision. But, you know, obviously he's going to make some mistakes too. But 
that's how you, and then what happens, you energize your guys because everybody's playing now. You know, all the positions yeah. are playing, you know, they're all involved some way and they all know they can get the ball at any time. And it just takes on a whole different persona for that football team. Well, that's what you guys had at the Rams. And I, I remember one particular game. If someone said, okay, give me a game that personifies and typifies what the greatest show on turf really was, it would be the game you guys played, the Minnesota Vikings. I think it was the first round of the playoffs. I can't remember right. which it year, was. Mike. Yeah, it was 99, yeah. Ni- 99. It was the first and, playoff game in St. Louis history at St. Louis. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And now the narrative was, well, the Rams had a great year, and now they, they have the week off. You had a bye week, and all week long – People have been telling them how great they are. The national media has been in town. Guys that never had an interview in their life are getting interviewed. All of that stuff. Now the L.A. train jumped on. The Hollywood train jumped back on. So all that stuff was going on. But you guys were going to get upset and surprised by a veteran cagey coach in, in Dennis Green. So, and, and, they, and I remember this distinctly sitting in the meeting with Madden and Summerall. And, and John said, you know what, this is going to be interesting to see if the Rams still keep their foot on the gas and play like they've been playing with this break. And I, I actually thought, I actually thought, I said, there's no way these guys are going to do what they've been doing to people. Because, Mike, as you know, you, were, you guys were embarrassing people. You made people look like they'd never even played football before, and they just got you know, picked up from another country or something. So I'm thinking to myself, I remember the balls backed up on the 20, like your 20, maybe even, maybe even 15, something like that. First play of the game, first play of the game. Came with a play action, and Kurt Warner threw that ball up the field. And as a DB, I just, in, in, in commentating, I would, as soon as the ball is, is gone, I turn and look to see where it's going, to see if someone's open so I could get ahead of it, you know, in, in terms of a call. And I saw Isaac had turned somebody around, and I said, oh, my gosh, and the crescendo of noise started to pick up in the dome. The ball, he caught the ball, took it in, and the roof blew off that dome. And the Vikings should have just got on the plane and went home right then because they were never in the game again. You know, we practiced that. Uh, when we were in that formation, they they would get in a particular defense as an adjustment to that formation and brought yeah. the corner. So. We felt like if we got we got in that formation and they did what we thought they'd do, we'd go ahead and run. I mean, it worked out. But in, in preface to that whole thing happened there, we spent all that time trying to encourage these guys how good they really are. And at that point, we weren't going to tell them all of a sudden not to be that good. Did <laughs> they know, not very, believe it? Did yeah, they not yeah, believe it? Well, no, they, they did. And that's what that's the whole point. So when they came in, yeah. you know, everybody's concerned about getting a big head. Well, no, that yeah. just that's that's what we were headed for. That's what we wanted. Oh, we wanted I see. To, I see. You yeah, we wanted. Yeah, got yeah, you. We yeah. wanted them to believe that they were the best ever, and that nobody deserved to be lined up on the field on, on the other side. You know, and, and we kept pounding that and pounding that and pounding that. You know, there's hey, you play as good as you can play. Nobody, nobody can play with you, and that's what we kept trying to get across to them. And and um, fortunately, they were good enough, and they did believe that. Yeah. So, and that's who they were. Yeah, yeah. I, I'll never forget that that play, though, because that play just was a stamp of uh, – co- it was confirmation. It was, oh, you, you guys, uh, um, the country, uh, the writers, 
you guys actually thought that we were going to misstep? Yeah, we might run the ball or something, right? So, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, you thought you were going to line up in three tights and, and yeah. pound it up. Man, I said, oh, my gosh. Well, we was- had a deal. You know, Jim <laughs> Hannafone is our line coach there, of course. And, and Jim and Jim was married to, you know, the way things were done in the past, you know. And, and, Old school. Uh, right. So he wanted yeah. to run power and run power one more time and this, that, and the other. Yeah. So anytime we come back out and and – get on the board with a different run or a new idea or something like that. Everybody in the room was kind of excited. And we talk about it all the time as a staff and Jim would say, well, nah, you know, this can go wrong and that can, I said, just admit, Jim, you're scared. You're scared, Jim. Oh. <laughs> you know, of oh. that, that would get to him. Of course, the guys would all laugh. And, but that was a deal we used to say every time we want, you know, like the 90 flip thing that we had, 90 you know, flip. where you fake the that dive and you, and you yeah. kick it out, you know, we created Jim, yeah. Jim thought that he said, "No, that's high school." And he fought it and he fought it, but he coached the heck out of it. We didn't practice; it seemed to work, and it ended up being fine. But we used to tease each other, and they teased me too. Somebody come up with an idea, and I said, "Ah, I said, what's the matter, coach? You scared? You know that kind of thing." So yeah. we always yeah. use that with players and coaches, you know, to not put your foot on the brake. And if if you can coach it, if it makes sense, if it's sound, why wouldn't you run it? You know, I learned from Norv is Norv, Norv's the all time uh, foot in the pill now. Really? <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 That's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Norv, I can remember working for Norv. He's the one taught me this. We'd come out in the game and run a triple reverse or a double reverse in the first play of the game, and my eyeballs would be sweating, you know? <laughs> oh, boy. That, no, no, I know you got a, a, a pretty good Jim Hannafin story somewhere, and I, I, I've heard that there's a, a deal with, a rental car at an airport that he left running somewhere. Do you, do you know anything <laughs> about that? Oh, there's so many of those stories. There's so many Jim Hanfin stories. I mean, this this is about ten a ten segment or a ten week deal for Jim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think in those days, you know, you could just pull your car up and and uh, you know, you, right next to the airport and some of those smaller airports, and you can park it and you walk in. Well, he was yeah, late, right. and he just got his bags and. Opened the door. The door was open. He went and he got on the plane and left. You know, that was before you had to secure and everything. The car's out there in the front running with the door open. He left the rental yeah. car running yeah. or the car running no, out yeah. there in the front. Yeah. And yeah, <laughs> the players, the players, of course, just adored him. You know, he, they had those, yeah. those donuts, you know, those glazed donuts, what do you call it? Krispy Kremes. Yeah. So, yeah. So they, the, the offensive linemen would make the young offensive linemen bring like a, uh, six dozen of them to every morning meeting that they had. And Henny would always take a – if there's cookies out there, he'd always take a half one and leave half, like he wasn't going to come back and get That it, guy. Right? Yeah. yeah. He's that guy, right? So he took a half a donut, right? So they they took, you know, the, the wax machines that you stick, the players would put their hands in the hot wax, you know. And yeah, yeah, out, the paraffin know? wax. The paraffin yeah. wax, yeah. So they took some donuts and they stuck it in there. And they put it on his plate while they're – Oh, I yeah. think I heard this. Yeah, oh. hysterical. So the, the players, you know, they're they're just bu- like a bunch of little kids, you know. He, 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 you know. So he he's right in his dialogue. He's putting in the game plan. He's got the lights out, and he's showing the opponent on the film. You know, he's he's taking these notes, and he just coughs them down like it's nothing. And so Adam Timmerman, the guard one, was all over. He says, "Hey, coach, how'd you like those notes?" He says, "Ah, they're good." 
he, it didn't bother him in the least. You know, he just motored right through it. You know, <laughs> he didn't even realize no, it he was no, old. He had no gosh. idea. No, uh-uh. that was that old school. As I said, those are the guys that used to watch the old eight millimeter film and didn't use a take up reel. Right. Just let it all fall on the ground, but yeah. don't touch it. We'll, yeah. we'll, we'll reel it back. Somebody up. will get it right. <laughs> oh man! Well, free agency is upon us, and. There's been some exciting moves. There's a couple guys still lingering out there like Cam Newton and uh, so on and so forth. Jameis Winston reportedly is close to a deal maybe with the Saints, and it it could happen any second now. But Tom Brady is, uh, Mike, obviously the biggest story of the offseason. He is. uh, Interesting, he went down to Tampa Bay, and I know he called them. I I just think that the whole situation down there for him – with Bruce Aarons, um, I think that was comfortable. And I think he, for what he's done in his life in football, he, he was going to go someplace where the weather was good and that somebody that he could trust in that relationship would be good. And if there was ever one of those guys, that's Bruce. You know, he's a wonderful guy, a wonderful coach. And and he, I think he felt comfortable, too, that they would do everything he can to help him in terms of other players. So it, hmm. even though on the outside it may not look like um, – it was logical or a head scratcher for everybody. I think the primary deal there was his relationship with the head coach. And, and of course, uh, you know, the weather I'm sure was to some extent, I don't know any of those things. This is just a guess. Do you think he was tired of the Belichick grind? I'm not sure. I know what the Belichick grind is. I've, I've heard a lot of people talk about it. I, I just, you know, maybe he was, uh, a little weird, literary, shall we say, of of maybe what his future was there in their eyes. I don't know. And sometimes you just need a change, you know, and he wants to keep playing. And was he 42 years old? That's that's mm-hmm. amazing that he's still playing yeah. at 42. So and you can understand why New England was ready to move on. You know, he's 42 years old. No matter what he's done, he's still 42 years old. So uh, we'll see. It'll be interesting to see what happens in Tampa Bay. Yeah, yeah. Well, one thing for sure is he's getting close to the end, and like like you say, maybe he just wants to to enjoy the the last few years his way. Well, he'll. He, I mean, he's such a competitor. Now that's yeah. the consummate. You were talking about those three things. Yeah, yeah. He's got high marks in all three of those things. Uh, the competitive part of it. The, the only thing that bothers me, Ron, is I watch him just in the last year. He has noticeably slowed down with his legs. And I think uh, his ability yeah. to get out of the way in the pass rush and then time things to still take the hit and all that, uh, I think he knows that too. He just can't – he can't get out of the way as fast as he used to, and that's a bad thing for quarterbacks, you know. And that's uh, – I'm a – I just – you know, he has definitely slowed down. So hopefully yeah. it, it won't be detrimental. He's got a good group of uh, receivers there with the Mike Williams there and Godwin, and now his boy Gronk is down there with him. So sure, they, yeah. Uh, and you know, like one you of said, those things too, Ron, is when you when you have a quarterback like that, uh, when you have a lot of tight ends, you can use them in protection, buy mm-hmm. more time, and then those tight end things are a lot shorter throws, quicker throws, so you can manage the game a little bit differently too when you have more tight ends. Well, we'll keep an eye on it. That should be interesting. Well, Mike, that's it, man. That's our uh, that's show number one. Holy cats, that time went hey, by fast, huh? Didn't it? I, I knew it would be fun, and uh, I can't wait till next time. This is going to be did. great. Ron Pitts, Mike March, Run It Again podcast. Hey, we're just two old pros trying to teach you a thing or two. We'll see you next week. <laughs>